This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth back some of that more to the, to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now these people are in very high position, Jack. Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 79. I am your co-host, Dimitri. Al Khalid. And today, we're returning to one of our favorite recent authors, I think I can say, on this podcast. Yeah, it's um, part two. Of a pretty weighty tome that, yeah, I think it's been a month or two since we released the first chapter of it, but an incredibly illuminating work from 1910. Actually, I forget when this installment came out, but I think during the 1910s, um, that is, of course... The History of the Great American Fortunes by Gustavus Myers. If we can do a brief previously on, you know, History of the Great American Fortunes, you know, in the the first chapter, highly recommend going and listening to it if you haven't. But it basically tracks the origins of uh, the various, you know, uh, economic fortunes uh, of the, you know, the colonial Americas and in the early United States. And basically... The central recurring thesis, which Gustavus Myers pretty much beats to death on every page in some amazing flowery (laughs) denunciatory language, is that the pretty much all of the great American fortunes that, you know, in his day were being celebrated and were absolutely dominant were all secured by fraud, deceit, treachery, murder, manipulation, etc. Oh, uh, bribery, yeah. exactly. Manipulation of the writing of laws itself, and in fact, the entire legal system. And yeah. of course, like, yeah, the bribing of uh, political representatives and judges and officials, like, all the way down um, the machinery of government. And thus, you know, basically, uh, I think his implication is that these fortunes are not legitimate, even by our own. Did you mentioned blackmail. That's another big one. Uh, blackmail comes up. Under fraud, fraud is probably the most like common word in in the these uh, you know volumes uh, mm-hmm. in this whole collection. Probably, I would say fraud is the most used word, other than you know the and so and things like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It, on every page, there is just like a <laughs> certainly in the chapter titles. Most of the chapter titles involve like some permutation of like wealth secured by fraud. Vast wealth yeah. secured by fraud. It, like some title permutation of that is the title of every chapter. 
Exactly. The seizure of the public domain, the might of the railroad owners, uh, the legalizing of cunning. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The land laws against the poor. This is just the first chapter. Vast tracts secured by bribery. Yep. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't slow down with the great subheader chapters in volume no. two it's great great extent of the land frauds yep yeah. uh, so yeah basically he tracks kind of from the the volume one kind of goes from like the you know the early 1600s basically kind of to the the period right before the Civil War and you know goes through John Jacob Astor is one of the main people that he profiles and does a pretty good job of you know showing that all of the all the bourgeois propaganda that Americans are so heavily inundated with uh, has, you know, basically painted a very incorrect picture of, you know, the types of um, uh, the methods by which these great magnets uh, acquired their wealth. It mm-hmm. wasn't through their Puritan thrift or their brilliant vision or their steadfast determination to provide a better service at the lowest possible product and deliver maximum value to customers. You know, I mean, they weren't even talking like that back then, but that's the kind of bullshit they'd probably say today uh, to extol one of our, you know, we're still living in the, in the epoch, I would say of uh, Mm -hmm. basically standing billionaires. Wouldn't you say call it? Definitely. Yeah. And I think that when these people like leave our world, which probably will happen in our lifetime. Well, you know, they're literally going to leave our world and go to outer space. But mm-hmm. when they there die, the panegyrics that will be treated to about Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and things like that, we'll get like, you know, Ashton Kutcher has been in the news recently due to his, yep. uh, you know, CIA uh, comments and, uh, you know... <laughs> and his, his venture uh, capital prowess, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. his concerns about TikTok being used uh, to, for geopolitical purposes in the South China Sea. Um, <laughs> he, you know, I remember he was in that, like, Steve Jobs movie that came out, oh, like, yeah. right after Steve Jobs' death. There was, like, I was just you know, thinking about Steve Jobs as an example of somebody who had, like, five biopics created about him right after Yeah, he died. and, well, you know, like, the one that was more celebrated was the, the Aaron Sorkin version where he was, like, you know, he was flawed, you know, he made some missteps, like, he treated his family poorly, but in a way it was all worth it because he was such a genius, you know, kind of mm-hmm, like when... Mm-hmm. President Josiah Bartlett lied about having MS, you know. That was a <laughs> quote-unquote flaw, but, like, can you, like... It's better than having, you know, the, uh, like, the Rathoglicans in there. True, you know? true. Yeah. Well, I think what we're also going to see today is the sort of the, the fake kayfabe of the sort of the dialectic in, uh, you know, American politics basically, you know, being kayfabe uh, really shine through, I think, in this part where there's really no, dis- there's very little distinction you can make in the 19th century I mean, it's certainly after, I, I think, the Civil War, in the North at least. I mean, maybe there were, there were regional kind of rivalries that expressed themselves through the two-party system. But it sounds like in the northern cities, you know, you had Democratic machines and then you had Republican politicians and they were all doing pretty much the exact same thing. And, you know, the, the process of, like, bribing both parties or just, like, playing them against each other you know, the ultimate sinister dialectic was something that really became like an art form in the Gilded Age, you know, Mm. after the Civil War. And some of the personalities in Volume 2 really became masters of the art form. But, you know, Gustavus Myers also points out that these aren't just like individual sickos that, you know, 
you know, people like, say, Jay Gould, who we'll talk about, and Cornelius Vanderbilt, they weren't just, you know, unique, awful sickos that, you know, even the businessmen at the time were just horrified by their rapacious behavior. No, indeed, they were indicative of the class that they, you know, both either sprang from or aspired to or both. And they their behavior was incredibly typical of the merchant trading classes of the time and like the landed elites, right? Yeah, something that blew my mind was the whole thing with, uh, we'll get to Jay Gould eventually, but it was, uh, I didn't actually know about this historical event, uh, the gold conspiracy, which was known oh, as yeah. such in its day. You know, mm-hmm. it's been on my mind lately, like the connotations of conspiracy. I was recently at, you know, uh, a social gathering where the con- the topic of conspiracy came up and it just kind of became clear in the course of the conversation that like for many people, and I think this is kind of, uh, you know, known to, to others and, and we've talked about it in the podcast before, but it became clear that for many people, like the word conspiracy has become like a synonym for like false or like an irrational idea. But at, you know, mm-hmm. uh, before, oh, yeah. like, JFK's assassination and the sort of poisoning of the term conspiracy with that connotation, you know, there was this uh, widely known and, and widely decried event uh, that was known as uh, the Gold Conspiracy mm-hmm. that, yeah, Jay Gould, uh, you know, and his Confederates engaged in uh, in order to, while all the while, interestingly, like, just kind of spewing accusations of conspiracy at unions, at like, uh, you know, everybody. It's funny. Constantly. Uh, yeah. Constantly. Uh, yeah, we're going to get into some false flags here. Uh, yeah. That, you know, uh, some aspects. Uh, Gustavus Myers not afraid to throw down the gauntlet in that regard of, you know, le- erring on the side of, yes, there was probably a conspiracy by Pinkertons and their silk Yeah, he definitely employers. has a critical paranoid streak. I want to, like, return to him if we ever do an episode about the Fox sisters because he was, like, a Fox sisters truther, as I mentioned, which is just <laughs> great. That really shows, I you definitely want to read his, like, spiritualism book. He's not all about, book. like, cleaving to pieties or anything like that. Yeah. It's, no, sadly, not. there's not enough crossover. Like, I was hoping that he would have some stuff about, like, which of these people consorted with gin or like evil ghosts but he didn't really he was just kind of you know uh laying out the proof although yeah it was like separate conspiracies by like the skeptoids against spiritualism Mm -hmm. yeah of course of course yeah Yeah. so i mean maybe we can you know uh start to dive in i think his opening you know brings that that gustavus fire and sets the stage but of basically talking the main subject of this is the development of the railroads Yes, uh, that's particularly in, in the post-Civil War era. So his main focus here, and actually the, the discussion of the railroads even extends into volume three, which we'll cover in a subsequent episode, and I think kind of morphs into like the final boss of American capitalism, which is the trusts, at least at the time he was writing it. But, you know, but before we kind of get into the discussion of the railroads themselves, a huge component of that is uh, the acquisition of land, uh, particularly in the Midwest and the, like the American West at that time. You know, we'll get to that in a second, but maybe we'll just, we'll just start. We'll check back in with Gustavus Myers in uh, his opening here, Chapter One: The Seizure of the Public Domain. And he writes, uh, before setting out to relate in detail the narrative of the amassing of the great individual fortunes from railroads, it is advisable to present a preliminary survey of the concatenating circumstances leading up to the time when these vast fortunes were rolled together. 
Without this explanation, this work would be deficient, deficient in clarity and would leave unelucidated many important points, the absence of which might puzzle and vex the reader. Although industrial establishments, as exemplified by mills, factories, and shops, mu much preceded the construction of railroads, yet the next great group of fortunes to develop after, and along with those from land, were the fortunes plucked from the control manipulation of railroad systems. So, subheader, the lagging factory fortunes. Under the first stages of the old chaotic competitive system in which factory warred against factory and an intense struggle for survival and ascendancy enveloped the whole tense sphere of manufacturing, no striking industrial fortunes were made. Fortunate was that factory owner regarded who could claim $250,000 clear. All of those modern and complex factors offering such unbounded opportunities for gathering and spoils mounting into the hundreds of millions of dollars were either unknown or in an inchoate or rudimentary state. Invention, if we may put it so, was just blossoming forth. Hand labor was largely prevalent. Huge combinations weren't dreamed of. Paper capitalization, as embodied in the fictitious issues of immense quantities of bonds and stocks, was not yet part of the devices of the factory owner, although it was a fixed plan of the bankers and insurance companies. Hmm, that's interesting. The factory owner was the supreme type of that sheer individualism which had burst forth from the restraints of feudalism. He stood alone fighting his commercial contest with persistent personal doggedness. Beneath his occasional benevolence and his religious professions was a wild ardor in the checkmating or bankruptcy of his competitors. These were his enemies. He fought them with every mercantile weapon, and they him, and none gave quarter. Apart from the destructive character of this incessant warfare, dooming many of the combatants, other intervening factors had the tendency of holding back the factory owner's quick progress, obstacles and drawbacks copiously described in later and more appropriate parts of this work. Uh, now, the might of the railroad owners. In contrast to the slow, almost creeping pace of the factory owners in the race for wealth, the railroad owners sprang at once into the lists of mighty wealth possessors, armed with the most comprehensive and puissant powers and privileges, and vested with a sweep of properties besides which those of the petty industrial bosses were puny. Railroad owners, we say. The distinction is necessary between the builders of the railroads and the owners. The one might construct, but it often happened that by means of cunning, fraud, and corruption, the builders were superseded by another set of men who vaulted into possession. Looking back and summing up the course of events for a series of years, it may be said that there was created overnight a number of entities. So this is where you maybe gets a little spiritualistic. <laughs> Try to read that into maybe. it. Over, entity, where yeah, I mean, it was yeah, created entities. over, yeah, created overnight a number of entities empowered with extraordinary and far-reaching rights and powers of ownership. These entities were called corporations and were called into being by law. Beginning as creatures of law, the very rights, privileges, and properties obtained by means of law soon enabled them to become the dictators and masters of law. The title was in the corporation, not in the individual. Hence, the men who controlled the corporation swayed the substance of power and ownership. The factory was usually a personal affair, owned by one man or in co-partnership. To get control of this property, it was necessary to get the owner in a financial corner and force him to sell out for, as a rule, he had no bond or stock issues. But the railroad corporation was a stock corporation. Whoever secured control of a majority of the stock became the legal administrator of its policies and property. By adroit manipulation, intimidation, superior knavery, and the corrupt domination of law, it was always easy for those who understood the science of rigging the stock market and that of strategic undermining to wrest the control away from weak, or treating the word in a commercial sense, incompetent holders. This has long been shown by a succession of examples. And, you know, so that's, uh, um, 
Yeah, so he says, uh, the legalizing of cunning. Thus, this situation, so singularly conflicting with the theoretical majesty of the law, was frequently presented. A band of men styling themselves a corporation received a perpetual charter with the most sweeping rights and properties. In turn, the law interposed no effective hindrance to the seizing of their possessions by any other group proving its power to grasp them. All of this was done under nominal forms of law, but differed little in reality from the methods during medieval times when any baron could take another baron's castle and land by armed force, and it remained his until a stronger man came along and proved his title likewise. Long before the railroad had been accepted commercially as a feasible undertaking, the trading and landowning classes, as had been repeatedly pointed out, had demonstrated very successfully how the forms of government could be perverted to enrich themselves at the expense of the working population. Taxation laws, as we have seen, were so devised that the burden in a direct way fell lightly on the shipping, manufacturing, trading, banking, and landowning classes, while indirectly it was shoved almost wholly upon the workers, whether in shop, factory, or farm. Furthermore, the constant response of government, municipal, state, national to property interests has been touched upon. How government loaned vast sums of public money, free of interest to the traders, while at the same time refusing to assist the impoverished and destitute. How it granted immunity from punishment to the rich and powerful, and inflicted the most drastic penalties upon poor debtors and penniless violators of the law. How it allowed the possessing classes to evade taxation on a large scale, and affected similarly cruel laws permitting landlords to evict tenants for non-payment of rent. These and many other partial and grievously discriminative laws have been referred to as also the refusal of government to interfere in the slightest with the commercial frauds and impositions constantly practiced with all the resulting great extortions upon the defenseless masses. Of the long prevailing frauds on the part of the capitalists in acquiring large tracts of public land, some significant facts have been brought out in preceding chapters. These fa those facts, however, are only a few of a mass. When the United States government was organized, most of the land in the North and the East was already expropriated, but immense areas of public domain still remain in the South and in the Middle West. Over much of the former colonial land, the various legislators claimed jurisdiction until, one after another, they ceded it to the national government. With the Louisiana Purchase in 1805, the area of public domain was enormously extended, and consecutively so later, after the Mexican War. So, yeah, he then he, I mean, he goes on in extreme specificity and length about how, like, yeah. basically in every state, there was rigging and bribery and fraud going on in the actual parceling out of the land itself and how basically the Homestead Act, which I think, you know, still occasionally gets brought up as like this great kind of like egalitarian thing that, mm -hmm. you know, they did in the mid 1800s. And of yeah. course, you could you could attack it on like settler colonial grounds, etc. But Gustavus Myers is saying that like they didn't even really give the land to settlers. What they really did is like a bunch of these moneyed interests like got a bunch of they would pay a bunch of people to travel out west and show up at these, you know, like land grant offices and claim their parcel and then turn around and give it to like some combination, some corporation. Basically. Yeah. And this pattern was repeated like in the south and the Midwest in, you know, right. The yeah. Southwest, when he talks like about, everywhere. It's just a gut punch when he talks about how the people basically couldn't do anything. And the entire like edifice of democracy was a complete fraud, like farce. And <laughs> yeah. like, you know, they went to, you know, the state legislature and they demanded like a constitutional provision to prevent, like, the state from bonding railroads, like, giving land to railroads, you know, giving all away all their resources and all their rights to these railroad companies, and, mm -hmm. you know, and all their taxes. But, you know, and so they got this, like, adopted, this provision that the state couldn't, they it forbid the bonding of the state for railroad purposes. 
but like they didn't forbid counties and municipalities from doing that. So <laughs> immediately the railroads started to get laws passed and just to start they just started bribing county officials and municipal officials to issue bonds and give them mm-hmm. uh, you know all those privileges that they had been getting from the states just like for absolutely nothing in return. Yeah, yeah. it really but, like you know that again there's nothing new under the sun with this because you really see really like in this story you really see a narrative of how the system that we exist in now where like people are like complaining about handouts. And all, like, mm-hmm. the, you know, the media and all these, uh, you know, commentary are totally captured by this ideological, like, myth that these people aren't, like, the biggest uh, beneficiaries and the biggest, like, thieves of taxes and yeah, the wealth yeah. of the people. Uh, we still, like, operate. So you hear that stuff all the time. It's, like, baked in so deeply. And, like, when people so first deeply. saw this happening and were trying to prevent it, they just got completely slammed at every turn. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like this this little paragraph, he lists so many investigations that were even done in the Senate and stuff, and actually even predating railroads, basically, going back to like the 1820s and the 1830s, I guess there was an exhaustive report from the United States Senate Committee on Lands in March 1835, and he writes, many of the speculators, it said, filled high offices in states where public lands bought by them were located. Others were people of, quote, wealth and intelligence, all of them, quote, naturally united to render this investigation odious among the people. The committee told how an attempt had been made to assassinate one of its members. <laughs> the first step, it set forth, necessary to the success of every scheme of speculation in the public lands, is to corrupt the land officers by a secret understanding between the parties that they are to receive a certain portion of the profits. The committee continued, the state of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana have been the principal theater of speculations and frauds in buying up the public lands and dividing the most enormous profits between the members of the different companies and speculators. The committee refers to the depositions of numerous respectable witnesses to attest the various ramifications of these speculations and frauds and the means by which they've been carried into effect. I mean, they tried to assassinate, like, one of the, like, I guess, uh, maybe one of the senators, uh, U.S. senators, trying to even poke into what was going on with all these land deals. So, you know, yeah, was, it really uh, it reminds me a lot, actually, of something we talked about recently on a Q and A about Bill Gates, like buying up all this land, like all this agricultural hmm, land. It's the same. Truly, nothing new. Yeah, there really is nothing new under the sun in this case because it's the same sort of thing where, like, there's kind of like a humanitarian gloss over it. With like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, we're looking out for, in this case, they were like, oh, we're looking out for the man a few dollars. You know, we want to encourage him to go out and settle in the in the great west, you know, when really they were just doing a massive land grab under the auspices of the state. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. This, is a, this is what a U.S. district attorney uh, wrote in a letter to President Andrew Jackson in 1835. Governments like corporations are considered without souls, and according to the code of some people's morality, should be swindled and cheated on every occasion. Linton gave this picture of, quote, a notorious speculator who has an immense extent of claims. He could be seen followed to and fro from the land office by crowds of free Negroes, Indians, and Spaniards, and the very lowest dregs of society in the counties of Opelousas and Rapides, with their affidavits already prepared by himself and sworn to before some justice of the peace in some remote county. These claims to an immense extent are presented and allowed. And upon what evidence? Simply upon the evidence of the parties themselves who desire to make the entry. So, yeah, that was a... So then, I guess, the system of credit, they eventually phased out, I guess, around that time. I guess it was controversial enough. Um, But then they were still doing auctions, I guess, 
like nominally selling things at a buck twenty five an acre, um, but then I think what it, he also goes into in other states, particularly in California was going in and classifying the land as like that you knew had say mineral deposits or was good cattle grazing land basically bribing a, a like land officer to go out there and classify it as like wasteland or desert or swampland so then the government would sell it to the interested party for like 25 cents an acre and then once they owned it they could like turn around and flip it for like five dollars you know like five dollars yeah. an acre or something like that and they just did this systematically and they would use poor yeah. people as cutouts to do this, it. This is like an insane part of the book. So this is uh, defrauding the nation of taxes. Not merely were these huge areas of land obtained by fraud, but after they were secured, fraud was further used to evade taxation. And by donations of land is not meant only that for intended railroad use, or sorry, uh, yeah, that for intended railroad use, or which could be sold by the railroads. In some cases, notably that of the Union Pacific Railroad, authority was given to the railroad by acts passed in 1862 and 1864 to take all of the materials, just stone, timber, etc., needed for construction from public lands. So in addition to the money and lands, much of the essential material for building the railroads was supplied from public resources. No sooner had they obtained their grants and the railroad corporations had law after law passed, removing this restriction or that reservation until they became absolute masters of hundreds of millions of acres of land, which a brief time before had been national property. And then he quotes from, uh, you know, another uh, scholar, or actually, no, sorry, a congressman. These enormous mm-hmm. tracts, wrote in 1886, uh, William A. Phillips, a member of the Committee on Public Lands of the 43rd Congress, referring to the railroad grants, uh, are in their disposition subject to the will of the railroad companies. They can dispose of them in enormous tracts if they please, and there is not a single safeguard to secure this portion of the national domain to cultivating yeomanry. The whole machinery of legislation was not only used to exclude the farmer from getting the land and to centralize its ownership in corporations, but was additionally employed in relieving these corporations from taxation on the land, thus obtained by fraud. To avoid taxation, Philip goes on, the railroad land grant companies had an amendment enacted into law to the effect that they should not obtain their patents until they had paid a small fee to defray the expense of surveying. This they took care not to pay, or only to pay as fast as they could sell tracts to some purchasers, on which occasions they paid the surveying fee and obtained deeds for the portions they sold. In this way, they have held millions of acres for speculative purposes, waiting for a rise in prices without taxation, while the farmers in adjacent lands paid taxes. Uh, And then he says, Philip passes this fact by with a casual mention, as though it were one of no great significance. You know, he says it's a fact well worthy of elaboration, you know, precisely as the aristocracies in the old world had gotten their estates by force and fraud and then had the laws so arranged to exempt those estates from taxation, you know, it's the same way here. Yeah. And he goes on to talk, you know, he talks a lot about the railroads, but then he is clear to sort of say, like, I don't want to be prejudicial and say that it was only the railroads because it was also the livestock corporations and the timber corporations. Yep. Um, and the co- and later on the copper mining uh, yeah. corporation, you know, mineral ore, uh, and, uh, yeah, silver, copper, things like that that were in the Southwest. Everybody was getting in on it, and they all acted in the same rapacious ways and manipulated the legislatures, you know, and basically, like, defrauded, like, the yeah. uh, the taxpayer, you know? Um, yeah, this is uh, what I think... Basically, left and right. This is what I think you were talking about with the Homestead Act was, uh, you know, I think this is similar. It was a desert land law where, mm-hmm. you know, the whole idea was 
that, uh, you know, the poor man uh, would, you know, go and get these lands in the desert. And many, according to Myers, many a pathetic and enthusiastic speech was made in Congress as this act was ostentatiously going through. Under this law, it was claimed a man could establish himself upon 640 acres of land and upon irrigating a portion of it and paying a dollar and 25 cents an acre could secure a title. For once, it seemed, Congress is looking out for the interests of the man of few dollars. Then there's a new chap- uh, section called Vast Thefts of Land. But plaudits <laughs> were too hasty. To the utter surprise of the people, the law began to work in a perverse direction. Its provisions had read well enough on casual scrutiny. Where lay the trouble? It lay in just a few words deftly thrown in, which the crowd did not notice. This law, acclaimed as one of great benefit to every man aspiring for a home and land, was arranged that the capitalist cattle syndicates could get immense areas. The lever was the omission of any provision requiring actual settlement. Uh, yeah, it reminds me of, like, you know, Bill Gates's, uh lawyers, like, buying up all these land and just, like, letting yep. it, you know, just waste away or, like, farming it in the most, like, destructive ways while posing as, like, this great environmentalist. The <laughs> livestock corporations thereupon sent in their swarms of dummies to the desert lands, many of which were in reality not desert but excellent grazing lands had their dummies get patents from the government and then transfer the lands. In this way, the cattlemen became possessed of enormous areas, and today these tracts uh, thus gotten by fraud are securely held intact, forming what may be called great estates, for on many of them lived the owners in expansive, binaural style. In numerous instances, law was entirely dispensed with. Vast tracts of land were boldly appropriated by sheep and cattle rangers who had not even a pretense of title. Enclosing these lands with fences, the rangers claimed them as their own and hired armed guards to drive off intruders and kill if necessary. Murder after murder was committed. In this usurpation, the August Supreme Court United States upheld them, and the grounds of the decision were what? The very extraordinary dictum that a settler could not claim any right of preemption on public lands in possession of another who had enclosed, settled upon, or improved them. This was the very reverse of every known declaration of common and of statute law. No court, supreme or inferior, had ever held that because the proceeds of theft were improved or were refurbished a bit, the sufferer was thereby stopped from recovery. This decision (laughs) showed anew how, while the courts were ever ready to enforce the law literally against the underlings and the penniless, they were as active in fabricating torturous constructions coinciding not always, but nearly always, with the demands and interests of the capitalist class. Wow. That yeah. really is amazing that they could they could come up with that kind of legal jujitsu that you could get a cur- you could bribe a land officer to go to like decent grazing land and say like it's a shitty swamp it's worthless and maybe somebody else is like living there and then the person goes and like puts up fences and kicks them out and the explanation of why they can do that is well this was classified as shitty like swampland and now look it's like it's grazing so he must have improved it therefore he gets to own it now that's kind of what that that's kind of what they're saying right yeah. i mean i don't know maybe it's not literal or just like whatever they put on it is an improvement maybe that's it doesn't certainly how yeah exactly well if you like went out there and you land. built a fence as long you know as long as they liked who was doing it you know then they would rule like actually you know they improved it they settled there so it's theirs now like kind of they they were like finders keepers because they put up some barbed wire and it's part of their you know estate now i'm just hearing um, the last resort like playing in my head right now like <laughs> fuck these people yeah but, uh, you some know, rich man come and they did rape the land and nobody caught them because yeah. they're all being bribed an interesting uh, theme much. i think in this volume and he talks about this a little bit with the gold conspiracy which was at the time you know something that was like i said like really decried you know and really denounced as like a huge abuse 
But he says, mm-hmm. you know, even in our uh, popular conception now, we think of like the, you know, Cornelius Vanderbilt and all these people as being like huge, abusive, like barons, you know, the robber barons, the railroad barons. But uh, mm-hmm. something that he returns to again and again is that there's this micro focus on these certain people or these certain industries when really like it's this whole system that should be indicted. Like people are yes. saying like, oh, these railroads are to blame, you know, out of like zeal and like maybe their hearts are in the right place. But really they're like not really that much worse or aren't really worse from these other industries like timber and livestock and, you know, these like the, yeah. the, the gold conspiracy, like uh, Jay Gould's like a, you know, ridiculous fraud, which we'll probably at least touch on. Um, oh, yeah. It was, yeah. you know, just yeah. part and parcel of the way Wall Street functioned. Yeah, and you know, the whole capitalist economy. I think that given all the uh, the recent, like, discourse uh, that, you know, we've seen or maybe dabbled in about the interplay between, like, broad structural forces and, like, a, a, you know, like a kind of classical, like, Marxist analysis of, mm-hmm. uh, of history and, like, the broader dynamics and kind of the framework or the heuristic of kind of conspiracy, you know, looking into it and I don't know, feeling pressure to like pick one or the other. And I think what we've always tried to do is like engage in in a dialectic on this podcast where I think we're trying to like find a kind of synthesis between those two things because I think that, um, because he does, I think, and I think Myers is like a great example of an attempt to do that in his era because like he, you're right. Like he, even though he's doing very in-depth kind of profiles on individual robber barons who are very well known and already have had some bad things like, you know, said about them and it's like easy to vilify them. He, he never lets you forget. He reminds you like every five pages that like these people are not unique and like we shouldn't let the entire class off the hook and it's not about people's behavior. You know, he's constantly doing like liberal checks on people to be like, no, the solution is not just to like prevent bad guys like this from getting too much, you know what I mean? Like too much power. Right. Yeah. It's, that's It's absolutely baked into the entire system. It is a system of yes. like fraud and, and theft basically on a mass scale that is sanctified by the law and mm-hmm. draped in all of this like democratic propaganda about how like you know basically this trickery like they they're psyoping people folks but they're doing it as a class and so but you know i think it's it's also it's very illuminating to look at the individual cases and the specific histories of the frauds because how are you ever going to overcome it if you don't actually examine it very closely yes, and also, like if we're just going to be like eh, these guys aren't that important because they're all just bad well like, right i don't and think that, that's quite uh, what he's saying yeah you know uh the the classic amy uh, argument of if donald rumsfeld hadn't been violent Vice president of the United States, uh, <laughs> yeah, then, yeah. you know, somebody else would have been. I saw some amazing thing, you know, uh, I guess this has been going around on Twitter, but maybe this this debate, I saw something that was like, these systems work independently of actors. I think that the person who tweeted mm-hmm. that actually deleted it because it was so absurd, you know, because <laughs> I replied to it saying like, oh, independently of actors? Like, tell me more. But uh, I, I never got a response. Like, the idea that like, what? Like, if there were no people then, like, somehow, like, the structural forces would still operate, like, uh, right? and, like, create, like, pretty... sand golems to, like, do capitalism, like, out of thin air. Like, it doesn't, you know, uh, it, yeah, like, obviously there is an element of, like, choice and human action taking place. Like, yes, structural forces are at play. Like, I think that, you know, that people's inclinations and their environment are always, in a way, interacting, but I think yes, that, yeah, yes. you know, and I think that in, to some extent, 
the like broad structural forces thing where it's like uh, we have to say that it's a, a faceless maw and like not yeah. name anybody directly or that's not like really what I feel Marx was like. I think that Absolutely. that is more like what uh, people in academia are like who don't have yeah. tenure yet and are afraid of being political. <laughs> Uh, like so, they can't like like name anything specifically. So they need to be as abstract as possible. That's like Ooh, what I think that ouch. approach uh, to broad structural know. forces is uh, like about. Yeah, like honestly, like I don't think that that's I'm like <laughs> the real like really what capital or most of Marx's writing are like. They're very much in the heat of like the times and engage with like the political issues of the day, like in specific terms. They're not Absolutely. like well, you know, it's all like theory brain stuff, you know, about like you know, the abstract stuff about linen or whatever. Like, you know, that's not... Totally, totally. You know, I, I uh, think, you know, I, I'm going to paraphrase... I'm going to, like, butcher the paraphrase of this, but, like, you know, one of his famous uh, axioms was, you know, like, men create their own destiny, but, like, not under the circumstances of their own choosing. So, like, they're inherently deeply impacted by the society they're living in and, like, the economic system and their own position and, like, like et cetera, et cetera. So, basically, it, you know, he, I think... He probably was pushing back against a certain amount of like great manism in historical analysis in his time, but at the same time, he wasn't doing what I think that is a very academic like not don't have tenure yet kind of thing uh, today. To if you are going to talk in like Marxist terms, you're going to keep it so abstract and. You know, like I saw another, I think, tweet in that same thread that was like, well, it's like you, you just don't understand it because like the proletarian is the subject, object, object of like history. But actually, oh, man. the that, object, subject, that that... I'm just like, stop. Like, just yeah. stop. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> yeah. Nobody has not. That's not going to fucking make sense to anybody. Just like quit it. Yeah, like, I but, honestly you know, could. I saw that, too. And I, I couldn't parse that. I almost thought that that was a joke. It might be a joke. It might uh, be yeah, a joke. But I, 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 I do believe it's believable that some people do kind of approach it from yeah. that angle. That's like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I get it. Like, you know, a lot of these guys like to lose can be interesting uh, and stuff. But like also like if we're talking about when if you're coming at us trying to say that conspiracy is totally irrelevant and doesn't get people galvanized at all and it's like not relatable to like the working masses but like talking about how like you are like a subject object class that needs to like achieve sentience like come on yeah you know what i mean like um, instead of being like did you know that like uh like, yeah or, uh, or the problem of like cons- I yeah conspiracism <laughs> i like i think that um, honestly yeah, like you know i've i've gained an appreciation i think for how like deliberately deployed and uh, the idea of conspiracy is is like a toxic term because mm-hmm. it is something that can just you know it, it signifies like inherently like this is irrational you know this can't happen when like of course there are conspiracies of the time like documented historical conspiracies like the Tuskegee experiments which like you it's, know it's also on the it's on decades. the law books like it's literally you know, a crime like, yeah in like exactly. every so, country pretty much uh, and but for whatever Rico, reason you know what I mean yeah exactly and like you know the so if there's this idea that you know everything is entirely deterministic in some way and like people don't have the ability to act like you know for instance like you know the capitalist class they don't like they're not involved in their decisions to like traffic children or something you know like they are just (laughs) enacting you know like the the geist of uh their class it you know Mm -hmm. i don't think that that is like really I don't think that's what Karl Marx thought honestly and I at all and no, I just think no. that that is like 
you know, if that's the case, well, then that's all right, fine. Like, then we just, like, what, do nothing? Like, just sit around, well, I, like, yeah, say nothing? I guess just talk about how, like, oh, you know, these broad structural forces of capital are bad. Like, it doesn't have anything to do with certain... Then you're in violation agencies. of... I mean, at what point can you say something? You know, like, can you say that, like, this empire or this, like, you know, structure system or a geopolitical organization is acting out it's you know or it's, it's yeah i what? guess the, sorry this yeah. this geopolitical organization is enacting its its will or like you know that for instance like can we indict like the spain for committing genocide like in the south america like is that something that we can criticize or it's only like you know individuals I yeah, I mean, but, it almost, it, it weirdly gets into this, like, weird territory. Uh, what, like, that, where does it break down, you know? like where Well, exactly, I mean, at a certain point, you have to hold, like, people responsible because people are inherent to these things existing. Because actually, you know what? This whole thing, it feels like a complete violation of, like, the spirit of Marx in that he talks about how, like, the, basically, like, the, you know, the broad structural forces of history are all literally driven from, like, human labor and human activity in, like, an organized way. So, like, everything does stem from humans affecting their environment, like, from the, the very basis of, like, hunter-gatherer society up through... That, that is kind of his his overall frame is that like he, and also like the idea that the point of philosophy is not merely to describe the world, but to change it. You're kind of throwing that out of the window when you just say, eh, well, you know, it doesn't matter anything specifically. Like it's just broad structural forces. And like, we just have to wait around for the moment, like the rapture to have the communist rapture to happen. And then yeah. like, when the time is right, we just need to wait around. And then when the conditions mature, then we will all just like spontaneously rise. It, it That sounds like some anarchist type thinking that like, we're just going to believe also, in the magic I almost of the feel guys. like it's again, to go back to the, the point about like an academic who doesn't have tenure yet. I think it's kind of a class signifier too, to be like, Oh, I'm too smart to think to like blame individuals. Like I understand the structural forces at play. You know, like, I don't get, like, deep in the weeds of that. I'm all about, like, the structures that are happening. Well, we, I mean, you we've know, talked about the like gaucheness of calling out certain types of people or asking about, like, their, you know, I don't know, somebody like Leslie Keen. I could imagine if you were at that, that gathering with uh, your, your liberal friends and you started talking about how, like, did you know Leslie Keen's, like, family, like, founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony and her uncle is like on the 9-11 commission and like all these other things and implying that there was something nefarious about her level of privilege um you, i think you get earned yeah a more hard. a more compelling uh line of attack on leslie keen in that context would probably be to just be like she believes in aliens or whatever that's you know? true actually she's uh, actually a wacky conspiracy theorist that yeah. would work on them yeah but because mm-hmm. that's ontologically acceptable but they don't like to kind of look they don't like to look at these you know like somebody like you know the the guy you see on cnn every night is a vanderbilt but yeah we don't and like to ultimately talk about that do we like, there are, like, and I think that this does come through in Gustavus Meyer's book, where he's talking about, like, how the courts, for instance, they made a decision to support the capitalists. You know, they could have yeah. done what they did when paupers or people of who didn't have means came before them and interpret the law literally, but they chose to rule with the capitalists because people are creating the legal theory to sustain this, you know, yes. and they're not doing it with full unconsciousness. 
Uh, yeah. you know, they're yeah, not. Some, somebody has to be conscious at some point for a system like this to exist. Like, I don't, I, I get that there are a lot of people who are kind of like cogs in the machine and they've bought the kind of exoteric narrative and maybe they don't see themselves as like absolute, like rapa- like working for rapacious robber baron psychos. No, but, they think that what they're doing is justified, but they know what yeah. they're doing. <laughs> Uh, you know what they're doing. The people yeah. who are the, the Indian swindlers out working for Aster, the people you know, like scamming the land perhaps, deals. I think that perhaps deep down they do maybe have a sense. I really don't know because I've never like defrauded a mass of people. I can definitely say that I would know that was bad and I would feel guilty. Uh, I don't really, I can't really see inside their like ethical sensibility, but I do think that people tend to with some exceptions, like, you know, the shaitans of the human race, those accepted, you know, I think that people tend to have a certain, like, ethical sensibility and to sort of uh, recoil from doing, like, egregious harm to their, their fellow people, even, like, if there's a certain distance that they can, uh, you know, the more distance the better, but even if it is there, then I think people tend to recoil from that and maybe they can suppress it, but... So maybe there is, yeah. they do have some sense in which they know what they're doing, but, you know, they need to work to justify it. Um, and, you know, th- well, think about all the ideological work that had to exactly, go into, like, yeah. the media, the clergy, like, because the, that's like the historians where all these legal the justifications, yeah, they have to, you know, exactly, like, in fact, Marx really was part of the ongoing dialectic or the discourse of legitimation for, you know, he was engaging with it and responding to it. Like the discourse of the legitimation of capitalism that had happened over centuries, you know, going even like to John Locke, you know, and to Adam Mm -hmm. Smith. They were people who uh, created the ideological scaffolding for these types of things uh, at Hobbes, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. And part of that was like uh, telling everybody, all your assets in the media, that anybody talking about the JFK conspiracy is a conspiracy theorist and probably a communist asset. So you shouldn't listen to them. You know, yeah, like truly ain't nothing new. We have to we have to like confront this dynamic in American yeah, history. I mean, I haven't read on. I haven't read Hobbes like in a long time, but I am kind of thinking in in uh, you know the context of this conversation. I'm thinking of that famous image of the king's body uh, that often accompanies the Leviathan. You often see it used to illustrate the, the Leviathan. I don't know if Hobbes drew it, but I think it was the original frontispiece. Uh, so someone drew it uh, probably for Leviathan. Um, it's like the king's body being made up of the whole mass of people, you know, because mm. the whole theory is that, like, he, the sovereign acts in the name of the assembled people, you know. And mm, yeah. you can kind of see, like, you know, you can see a parallel with that, like, in the idea of, like, oh, you know, it's society, really. Like, this king, like, when he's, uh, you know, the sovereign force, when he's term- making these determinations uh, and, you know, cre- uh, de- deciding what is licit and what's illicit. Uh, he is acting in the name of the people, and that's where he derives his power from. Uh, you can mm-hmm. see a parallel between that and the idea that, like, oh, you know, uh, individual actors are irrelevant, you know, it's all bisexual forces. And you can also see a parallel to the way that these corporations often have acted using the political apparatus of democracy as, mm-hmm. like, a shield and as a, a sham uh, to base, like, yeah. various predations on. And in a way that is incredibly, like, direct, because they yeah. basically, it was, we'll, we'll probably get into it a lot with uh, with the Jay Gould's uh, escapades, but the amount of, like, like literally bribing judges in, in cities like New York and stuff like that, like, these people all had, they started collecting politicians, like, little action figures, basically, and what you saw with the rise of, like, the chartered corporation 
in kind of the mid 1800s was this new, more supercharged model of capitalist expansion, where you could hire this army of lawyers and accountants and like lobbyists and things like that. And basically through all kinds of, you know, really kind of a, a more sophisticated version of what the earlier kind of patroon descendants did in New York of, you know, getting favorable laws passed, like basically yeah, doing the most twisted things with the legal system to also to get the public budget to pay for everything. So it's like, I don't know, we've brought up before how, and I know a lot of people talk about how, you know, like these Silicon Valley companies don't pay any taxes today, but the internet was basically built by the U.S. military and like U.S. taxpayer dollars. So how, how does that make sense? That like the entire infrastructure and R&D was like developed by the common fund, but then like Jeff Bezos gets to build a big dick rocket and fly <laughs> to space like with his funny money. And like we just accept that, well, he built Amazon. You know, like he had the vision to build it. Um, and like I've heard people kind of like just casually make those arguments. Or, like, why does Bill Gates deserve more than a billion dollars? You know, I try to make it easy for people. Like, why does anybody deserve more than a billion? But like, yeah, but he built Amazon. Like he had the idea for it. I'm like, did he build it like by himself, like just alone in his garage? He built the entire multi-billion dollar operation, you know, or did like thousands of people build it? And it said you could go a million ways with that, but there's still like a, a huge resistance to that idea of, I don't know, which in, in many cases, it's just like paying the legal system to manipulate the law to like give you something approaching a monopoly. And it's like yeah. not even, uh, and once you, know, these, you know, and once people like create, once the people who are creating the laws like are creating the, ideolo- you know, are uh, referring to the ideological justification for it in their circles, like within their class environment, once they create the laws and thereby create the practices and the structures of society, then like those ideologies become more ossified within the society. They mm-hmm. become sort of a matter of course, you know, like because this is how we always remember it having been. It seems mm-hmm. totally natural that like, yeah, people can, should be billionaires because like the laws that we operate by that make that possible have the ideology and the decision baked into them. Uh, this is actually yeah. a great part of the book, which is, it's titled, uh, which is very relevant to what you're saying, uh, it's called Seizure of Immense Areas by Fraud, which is very <laughs> similar to uh, the previous uh, Seizure of Vast Tracts by Fraud, but a different yeah, sure. part. Um, so, official reports of the period, contemporaneous with the original seizure of these immense tracts of land, give far more specific details of the methods by which that land was obtained. Of the numerous reports of committees of the California legislature, we will here simply quote one, that of the Swamp Land Investigating Committee of the California Assembly of 1873. Dealing with the fraudulent methods by which huge areas of the finest lands in California were obtained for practically nothing as quote-unquote swamp land, this committee reported, citing from what it termed a mighty mass of evidence, that through the connivance of parties, surveyors were appointed who segregated lands as swamp, which were not so in fact. The corruption existing in the land department of the general government has aided the system of fraud. Also, the committee commented with deep irony, the loose laws of the state governing all classes of state lands has enabled wealthy parties to obtain much of it under circumstances which, in some countries, where laws are more rigid and terms less refined, would be termed fraudulent, but we can only designate it as keen foresight and wise. (laughs) Of course, uh, of course, yeah. Yes, and I think wise what, what was the number? Loose, unwholesome laws. 
Nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I noticed that uh, they, the, the amount of land owned by like several people in California by like kind of the end of the century was absolutely staggering. It was like there were like five people that owned like hundreds of thousands of acres or something. I, I forget. I'm trying to see here. Uh, um, uh, shout outs, by the way, to Commissioner Sparks of the, yeah, I guess, he, the land department. He was on to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Critical support for Commissioner Sparks, who really yes. tried to do everything he could. Um, he, descri- he described a case where it was discovered by special agents in California that an English firm, uh, LaRouche Alert, had obtained 100,000 acres of the choicest redwood lands in that state. These lands were then estimated to be worth $100 an acre. The cost of procuring surveys and fraudulent entries did not probably exceed $3 an acre. In the same manner, Commissioner Sparks continued, extensive coal deposits in our western territory are acquired in mass through expedited surveys, followed by fraudulent preemption and commuted homestead entries. He wanted to tell that nearly the whole of territory of Wyoming and large portions of Montana had been surveyed under the deposit system and the lands on the streams fraudulently taken up under the Desert Land Act to the exclusion of actual settlers. Nearly all of Colorado, the very best cattle raising portions of New Mexico, the rich timberlands of California, and the splendid forest lands of Washington Territory and the principal part of the extensive pine lands of Minnesota had been fraudulently seized in the same way. In all the western states and territories, these fraudulent surveys had accomplished the seizure of the best and most valuable lands. Quote, to enable the pressing tide of western immigration to secure homes upon the public domain, Commissioner Sparks urged, it is necessary that hundreds of millions of acres of public lands now appropriated should be wrested from illegal control. But nothing was done to recover these stolen lands. At the very time, Commissioner Sparks, one of the very few incorruptible commissioners of public lands, was writing this. The land-grabbing interests were making the greatest exertions to get him removed. During his tenure of office, they caused him to be malevolently harassed and assailed. After he left office, they resumed complete domination of the Land Commissioner's Bureau. Cool. So, you know, Commissioner Sparks tried to fight them, but, like, you really can't fight these people, and they'll just take over the department afterwards. That yeah. was the, the general kind of, um, you know, of vibe. You know, I just had this thought that, you know, it kind of reminds me when uh, the whole thing of, like, oh, you know, they're just acting out, you know, the... Uh, the geist of their class, you know, this is just how the mechanisms of capitalism work, you know, the, the bourgeoisie, they can't, they can't help it but, but act this way, you know, it's kind of reminds me a little bit of when, uh, you know, I think it is something that came up earlier in another episode where, uh, you know, we, we read that thing where someone was like, well, you know, yes, David Bowie, you know, raped a million people, but, uh, that was the culture of the time, you know, that was just mm-hmm. how it was, like, in these rock communities, but, you know, that's not actually true. Like, people did know it was wrong. And people said Mm -hmm. at the time that it was wrong, but they were just lame. And you're caping for David Bowie because you like his music, so you don't want to believe that he did anything wrong. But Mm -hmm. it's harder to explain why people are caping for capitalists and, like, you know, Satan-worshipping Bohemian Grove owl men. But Yeah, uh, literally probably the people who founded Bohemian Grove or, like, Stanford (laughs) and Crocker and all these psychos. uh, But, yeah, uh, you know, like, uh, Commissioner Sparks knew that this land grab was wrong. Even, like, there were even people, like, who weren't Native Americans who knew that, like, the original land theft from Native Americans was wrong. And really that was still ongoing at this time. People knew Mm -hmm. that it was wrong. But, you know, the people who won out were the people who didn't care and who either didn't think that it was wrong or didn't care. Yeah, exactly. It also brings like an interesting thing. Maybe we'll get more uh, into it with both Vanderbilt and Gould. There's there's a new interesting kind of like three way triple threat 
uh, trialectic, I guess, uh, I guess you could say, uh, going on that <laughs> kind of emerges uh, later in the 19th century, where you kind of have like three dominant like classes of people where you have like the robber baron the the fraud class basically at the top and then you have like the working masses who are increasingly in earnest starting to organize and like you know basically start to defend their interests but then there was like the middle classes the petty bourgeois class and they also like i've noticed this before reading other things about the gilded age they occupied an interesting position because they were the ones kind of most like sentimentally attached to the narrative of what america was supposed to be and i think you can still see it today like with middle class people that kind of become like like they they kind of hate corporations but they're also really reactionary and like hate poor people kind of thing you know where uh like i mean just look at tucker right now like he i think he's kind of speaking to that like middle class like that angry middle class component but you know they looked at people like vanderbilt as like a, a monster who was going to devour the system of free competition but they also like kind of identified a little bit with those robber barons because they were exploiting the shit out of their workers and wanted to you know they wanted the system to kind of stay more or less the way that it was with like smaller businesses like freely competing and so they're very anti-monopoly and so like depending on what was going on at the moment they could temporarily sort of shift more to like take the side of the workers but at the first inkling that the wealthier classes would kind of cut them in or give them what they want they would immediately side against the workers and become like their you know some of the most hostile opponents but that but then like they keep constantly getting betrayed and screwed over like consistently as we get to like the end of the 1800s and uh it creates uh but i think like that's kind of like the homestead dream is like a very like middle class you know aspiration for this era and the fact that like at every turn like they too are mostly getting screwed over unless they like yeah. fully join the the right blood yeah he talked about how the middle class well he even says the middle class comprising the small business and factory men stubbornly insisted on adhering to worn out methods of doing business its only conception of industry was that of the methods of the year 1825 it refused to see that the centralization of industry was inevitable and that it meant progress. It lamented the decay of its own power and tried by every means at its command to thwart the purposes of the trusts. It's crazy he's talking about the decline of the middle class, like, even then. This middle class had bribed <laughs> yeah. and cheated and had exploited the worker. For decades, it had shaped public opinion to support the dictum that competition was the life of trade. It had, by the shaping of opinion enrolled on its side a large number of workers who saw only the temporary evils and not the ultimate good involved in the scientific organization and centralization of industry. Wow. The middle class put through antitrust laws and other measure after measure aimed at the great combinations. These great combinations had, therefore, a double fight on their hands. On the one hand, they had to resist the trade unions, and on the other, the middle class. It was necessary to their interest that centralization of industry should continue. In fact, it was historically and economically necessary. Consequently, they had to bend every effort to make nugatory any effort of government, both national and state, to enforce the antitrust laws. The thing that had to be done no matter how. It was intolerable that industrial development could be stopped by a middle class which, for self-interest, would have kept matters at a standstill. Self-interest likewise demanded that the nascent combinations and trusts get and exercise governmental power by any means they could use. For a while, triumphant in passing certain laws which, it was fatuously expected, would wipe the trust out of existence, the middle class was hopelessly beaten and routed. 
by their far greater command of resources and money, the great magnates were able to frustrate the execution of those laws and gradually to install themselves or their tools in practically supreme power. The middle class is now becoming a mere memory. Even the frantic efforts of President Roosevelt in its behalf were of absolutely no avail. The trusts are mightier than ever before and hold the sway the disputing of which is ineffective. Wow. That sounds like you could be talking about like 2021 and like the MAGA and Brexit type constituencies that are like, we don't want your globalism, you know, and then they're just like, we're like, we're building a wall. Like, and then, you know, these like these trust uh, elitists on the East Coast are like, oh, this is so inconvenient, you know, and they they just want to like, you know, and then maybe even it's an interesting it, it is crazy how relevant it is to today uh just like modern u.s politics that same dynamic of like thinking that you know like a teddy roosevelt type figure a boisterous teddy roosevelt style president is going to come in there and like bust up facebook because they're doing yeah exactly how there's like yeah right um yeah exactly <laughs> teddy roosevelt's gonna come in yeah and stop you know he's gonna do like populism or whatever on behalf of like the sort of aggrieved reactionary middle class that just wants to exploit the workers in a different way. Uh, yeah, but then, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, but if you go after the silk toppers, they're not going to lie down and take it. Exactly. Because, you know, uh, and ultimately, we all know, as Siskel said, they, they run this country. Yeah, no they matter did what. back then, certainly. No matter what, the working people get completely screwed, and the, and the silk toppers basically get what they want. Uh, I mean, maybe yep. one silk topper will win out over another, but it's, you know, some silk topper... Uh, and eventually uh, wins the day. Uh, the trusts but- of trusts will increase in, in power.
cheek, this lame. 